Welcome to an episode of the award-winning podcast Art Insiders New York. My name is Anders Holst. The theme of the podcast is New York, with a focus on behind-the-scenes conversations with fascinating people who are making an impact in the world of art, design, and architecture. Philip Williams is the prolific collector and director of Philip Williams Posters, founded in 1973. His Tribeca Gallery, located on Chambers Street, is the largest vintage poster gallery in the world, with over 100,000 unique posters dating from 1870 to the present. In this episode, Philip Williams tells fascinating stories cultivated from over 40 years of collecting vintage posters and details how it all started after finding letters from aviation pioneer Orwell Wright in an abandoned suitcase. His Tribeca brick-and-mortar storefront is supplemented with an online platform, postersmuseum.com, which contains some 26,000 posters. Very welcome to the podcast Art Insiders New York. Here we are in your beautiful uh, space. It's located in uh, Tribeca, 122 Chambers Street, and it goes through the block uh, from Chambers to Warren Street, basically. And here we have posters all over the place. We do indeed, from every country, every period, from 1860 to today. And they are on the walls, they are rolled up, and they are on tables, and you have, what, 15 feet ceiling height? 15 and a half foot ceiling height, 4,200 square feet per floor, and we have three floors. So how many posters do you have here? Probably in excess of half a million. So it's one of the largest collections of posters for sale in the world, or it is the largest. So on the website, how many, how many posters do you have there? It's 26,000 plus, because mm -hmm. we add several times a week, two or three times a week, we're adding new, new posters to the collection. I see. So if someone asks you, uh, Philip, what is a poster? What is, what is the answer to that? Poster is a means of communication, generally printed on paper, to encourage you to do some form of action. So there, there was a story in one of the uh, articles that I read about you that you found letters in a suitcase, and those letters came from Orwell Wright, yep. uh, the Wright brothers. Is that a true story? Yeah, yeah, it is. And actually, it was, it was a period where I'd quit construction. I swore I wouldn't. I'd, I left the union construction. When I went to one of the construction sites, the the drill was 45 pounds, the bit was 10, and I weighed about 140 pounds, so I knew construction was not, a demolition was not gonna be one of the things I was gonna be doing. Uh, and I saw that there was a hotel being renovated. Yeah. So I knew that in those hotels were trunks, and those trunks were often left by people or who died or moved on and left them behind. And so I went to the guy doing the, doing the construction, uh, the renovation. There was a, a hotel on 73rd Street. And I said, I, I buy and sell trunks. I'm interested in your trunks. How much if I take everything? Yeah. And it was $100. Well, I didn't have $100. I didn't have any dollars. So I was finally able to scrape up $50. And that was everything I had in the world. And I said, well, I don't have room in my warehouse for all of them right now, but I'll take half of them for 50. Yeah. So I took the half that had things in them. And it was really a very good find. There were jewelry, there was jewelry. But the best piece was three letters from Orville Wright. Yeah. And one of them discusses him being afraid of being caught in an updraft over Alabama. And it was really interesting. And I gave those three to uh, an auction house, Hamilton, Charles Hamilton, yeah. who was the premier auctioneer. And I believe they sold for $1,200, the three of them. And for me, that was more money than I knew ever existed. I couldn't imagine anyone had $1,200, <laughs> let alone me having it. So, yeah, that was So that got you started, those, yeah. those letters. Yeah, those three letters. And being lucky enough to find Charles Hamilton and uh, yeah. getting them sold at auction. Wow, that's an incredible story. And this was in the beginning of the 70s. So when did you move to this location? Here I've been 16 years in mm -hmm. this location. Mm -hmm. And then I was around the corner on West Broadway with yeah. an L-shaped space. Mm -hmm. And I was there for about five years. Mm. So I've been down here 20 plus years. 
So when you started focusing on posters, what was the market like in those days? Was it like a, a, a growing market? Because if I understand this correctly, there was like one golden age of posters in the uh, at the late uh, 1900s, and then there was a, another golden age in the 60s, uh, 70s. Yeah, I suppose the golden ages for the posters are really the 1880s to 1900. Mm -hmm. You skip a little bit. World War I produces a great number of posters, so yeah. 1914 to 1920. Then you have a pretty fallow space going until roughly 1965, and you start with the psychedelic posters again. And the psychedelic posters are part of what draws people into posters, and that begins the, uh, another renaissance of poster buying and collecting. I see. And I understand also that in that second wave, so to speak, it was more about uh, maybe protest or self-expression. Uh, and, and it was different uh, compared to the first wave, right? Yeah, yeah. There was very much protest, the protests against the Vietnam War. Yeah. All of the artists, Picasso, everyone contributed work to that. Mm. Um, so you had a very interesting period of protest and psychedelic and hang in there baby kind of uh, posters. Yeah. So you had posters meant for sale and then you had posters meant to demonstrate an action. Yeah. I remember when I grew up, my parents had these uh, classical posters from the late 1900s. Uh, Toulouse-Lautrec and uh, Chat Noir and all of those. And then when I grew up, we had more um, art posters, like gallery exhibitions. And uh, when we went to France, for instance, and we went to an art exhibition, we would buy um, the poster as, as a souvenir. And that's why I like this store so much, because when I come here, it reminds me of the home that I grew up in. And, and I can relate to many of the posters that you have here. Yeah, we've been lucky to be able to deal in every period, especially the turn of the century, although they've gotten fairly expensive mm. at this point. And the tastes change. There's always a revolution, and I think now it's more 50s and 60s, mm. and beginning people looking at the 70s. And also people are starting to look more at design than they have. Uh, they're looking at Swiss design, graphic design, typography. Mm and the masters of those periods. So that's part of what is people are moving towards. When I uh, did some research on your website, you have a very interesting thing there. You have a, a sort of an overview of what people are looking for. Um, I was, I was uh, surprised to see that when you look at the popular categories, Polish posters are among the most popular ones. Why is that? Well, they did great design. The, they did a lot of. They had a big budget for movie posters, mm -hmm. so a lot of movie posters got produced. And many times, you're not sure that the artist ever even saw the movie that they were doing the poster of because it's so strange. Uh, it's really a free form and a unique style unto itself. So I think that's part of what draws people. But for a long time, there was very little interest. I've been buying Polish posters for 45 years or more. Yeah. And it was more of the kind of thing where somebody would come from Poland to come to the States for a holiday and they'd bring a roll of posters, sell them at a dollar or two dollars each and be very happy for the bargain that they'd made. And now, finally, people are beginning to recognize the Polish poster. That's very interesting. So how does that compare to, for instance, I read somewhere that uh, Russian posters are very uh, popular after the breakup of the Soviet Union. First of all, is that true? And if so, uh, why is that? Yeah, it's true, and I think that you had the social the Soviet realist painters and artists and poster designers, and you also had in the turn of the century, or actually in the 19-teens, you had the constructivist, you had a, a great wave of Russian design. Mm -hmm. um, there are some of the more expensive and some of the rarer posters to find. Other popular categories here, uh, of course we have to say that movie posters is the dominant category? It's certainly the, the most expensive category, uh, with Metropolis bringing in the neighborhood of a million dollars, the Fritz Lang film. Yeah. And movie posters have got a, wide, a very wide base of collector. People mm. are collecting them for design and image, 
But they're also collecting them because they like the director or the actor, the story, the, yeah. the, the screenwriter. So there are a lot of avenues of fields of collecting within movie. And there's also a great deal of money behind it. And I think a little bit, it's sort of one-upmanship. You can, you know, with the Hollywood stars and directors, they've got two or three homes. They've got a half dozen cars. Yeah. So how are they going to beat their buddy? And that's by <laughs> owning a very rare poster, of which there may be two or three that still exist in the world. Yeah. So it drives a, a certain clientele that has plenty of money. I see. And that can well afford. And posters are very inexpensive works of art. For the most part, most mm. posters are a few hundred dollars. Are they all movie posters in the top five, would you say? I would think so. The yeah. Frankenstein, The Mummy, The Horror, and Sci-Fi are some of the most expensive of the movie posters. And then you have, a, then you have posters by artists, Toulouse-Lautrec, Cassandra, who's the father of Art Deco design. And these artists were very important in their own, in several fields. It wasn't just posters that they were prominent in. They were graphic designers, they were set designers, they did lots of things. And posters was just part, especially for the French, they would do a lot of posters. An artist like Capiello might do 2,000 posters in a lifetime. So he really understood what to do and could turn out a poster very quickly that was very effective and very strong and compelling. Yeah, I see you have a, a number of his uh, posters on the walls here, and they are incredibly strong. The technique of printing posters go way back to, what, 1750 or something like that. You have posters early. I mean, your first posters were really announcements from the government or the king to get you to do something or to let you know what the prohibitions were. And those were primarily text. You have images coming in when Sinfelder develops a form of printing called lithography, and you're able to reproduce image. And then you're also able, with an artist like Jules Charest, comes along and you're able to have multiple colors yeah. and an economical base. The printing has always been a measure, and posters have always been a measure of how well they can print. And the printing presses sort of dictate the size of the images. And I see. Each country has its own dominant size. So Charest is one of the more important uh, people here because he was also an innovator of printing techniques. But he was also like Capiello. He was very uh, productive. Yeah, very productive. Owned his own printing company, which at some point he ended up selling. Had a great sense of style. And his early posters are especially interesting. The 1860s, 1870s. I think 1870s are the beginning for Charest. And he is able to captivate and stop you. Everyone's very busy on the street, but yeah. he and Capiello both were able to intrigue you, to give, make you spend that extra five seconds or ten seconds to get the message yeah. and to go further with it. I also learned that he, he introduced uh, um, sexy women. They're called the charrettes. Right, right. <laughs> and that was something that artists had often done, using women in design and using sort of the provocative woman, yeah. uh, the daring, the brave. And also women were used in, in a lot of different ways for bicycle posters. Women often show up, and they show up. It's, at one time, people thought that you would die from going too fast, uh, even, so, even to the point where for cars would have to have horsemen riding in front of them, flagging people to let them know a car was coming. Yeah. So you have some pretty crazy ideas about speed and, and safety. And women were used a lot in bicycle posters to show how safe it was I and see. how easy it was that even a woman can ride a bike. So you've got to, and, but the bike was also very important for women. It helped them break away from the factory or break away from the farmhouse and see somebody five miles away and be able to go home and take control of their lives. Yeah. Interesting. So, yeah. So it's part of uh, women's liberation, in a sense. Yeah, yeah, the bicycle and the poster both, huh. evening the playing field. And then we have a Czech, uh, Mucha, father right. of Art Nouveau. What, what can be said about him? A great designer, worked primarily in France, did mm -hmm. work some in Czechoslovakia, worked in other countries, uh, did work for artists, or did work here in the U.S., he was really the father of, the, of Art Nouveau design, mm. and which is a very floral, decorative style of printing or of painting and design. So I think his work really speaks for itself. I mean, it's a very pleasant, happy, cheerful, elegant method of 
bringing the, the idea to the people. Yeah, it's so interesting to when you when you read about this that that really what what accelerated this development was the sort of of course the printing technology, but also mass market and and mass consumption and mass production. Yeah, I think they 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 wanted a design that not only would you enjoy it on the street, but you liked it so much that you would take it home. Yeah, and posters in the 1880s, the late 1880s especially, had become so popular. I mean, for the first time, you could have a big work of art on your walls. You may not be able to afford a painting, mm -hmm. but you had a big middle class in France and England and Germany around the world at that time who couldn't quite afford the painting, but they could afford a good poster. In Paris in the 1880s, you had over 40 dealers in posters. Mm -hmm. So it was a very popular form, uh, so popular that people would have costume parties where you would come dressed as a character in a poster. <laughs> And they were so hard to find that Charest created a small series, roughly 12 by 15 inches, of the poster of the month. And if you subscribed, you'd receive four each month. Uh -huh. And they had big subscriptions because people had run out of room for big posters. They still wanted to collect, so the Maitre de la Fiche, or the Masters of the Poster, was a series that was very popular. And there were prints done. That you had the same sort of thing. You had magazines in England yeah. called The Poster in France. And you had in Germany, Das Plakat. So you had a lot of serious hardcore collectors who found it fun and exciting. Then that turns into Art Deco, then we move into after the First World War and so on. Did the poster market, did it go down at that point or was it still sort of moving along pretty well? Well, the market is changing because by 1920, you start having a great deal of magazines being prominent, so much so that in America, people, sometimes 40 different or 50 different people would read one magazine. It got passed from hand to hand mm -hmm. until it was almost illegible. So a lot of advertising money started going into magazines and taking away from the poster. And radio is coming along and the ads are going into radio as well. So posters start to diminish in popularity because other forms of advertising are taking their place. The development in the United States, did that mirror the, what's happened, what happened in Europe? I think it mirrors, it mirrors Europe until about 1900. Mm -hmm. And you have American artists by the name of Edward Penfield, Louis Reed, Ethel Reed, Bradley. So there's a whole group of American painters, illustrators, and poster artists who start to define the American art. So it's one of the first breakaways from the European art mode of mm -hmm. being like the Europeans. All of a sudden, it was like the Americans. So they developed their own style. So when the, the Americans came along that you described, did they have a different message or a different tradition than uh, the Europeans? Well, uh, there were a few things that were different. I think they were probably more formally trained they were doing perhaps more arts and crafts, and the style was arts and crafts. Uh, that was the style that, of furniture, of jewelry, and Wild West opening, and lots of simple lumber furniture. Yeah, so I, th I think that's part of, of what you see. A lot of the posters were smaller at this point, because a lot of the posters were magazine or book posters. And if they weren't small, the store owner wouldn't put them in the window. So you had to make a small design. So design becomes compressed, it becomes uh, bolder, perhaps. I mean, you do have big posters in the sense that you have circus, and the circus is an important part. In the big cities, you have dealers and posters, but not that many, not, not nearly what the Europeans have. You have artists or printing companies like Strobridge, who did a lot of circus posters, a few war posters, a, th a lot of theater posters, and part of that is that there was a big German immigration in the 1870s, 1880s, and a lot of them ended up in Ohio, ended up in Cincinnati, and those were ports that were very good. There was limestone to be found for printing, 
there were good artists embellished the American sense of style. Uh, after the Second World War, was it still uh, products or was it uh, political or was it uh, artistic? I think after the Second World War, I think your primary is movie posters that we touched on before. Movie posters were were distributed, I think there were 12 centers in the U.S. in the major cities, and posters were were rented by the theaters, so they would be mailed back and forth. So you had big warehouses full of posters that when they finally broke that up, the big printing or the big distribution companies folded, and those posters came onto the marketplace. But after the war, you've got movie, and then you still have some circus, and you start to get some product, but again, they're smaller. Your museums were starting to, to pop up, open. They were starting to get much more action, so you were having poster, posters for museums, for art exhibitions. I, I think that was a good way of, of expressing or of getting people to, to come out. Forgery is, of course, a, uh, an issue when it comes to posters. How do you protect yourself against that? Well, it's actually not that much of a problem because the method of printing changes so much that if you're doing a forgery, if you're trying to duplicate something, it's very hard. It, it costs you several thousands of dollars. So you have to be able to sell enough of them to recoup your cost and the risk of, uh, of penalty for forgery. I've seen very few posters that have been forged. What people are more likely to do is to create a poster in the style of somebody and print that. So there isn't an original to check that against. Mm -hmm. But when you're doing that, it's very hard. There have been very few successful reproductions. I mean, I'm, I, I know of people who do things like that from time to time, but they're more likely to do something that's a few hundred dollars. Uh, the way to protect yourself is, one, look at as much art as you possibly can, as many posters as you can. Mm -hmm. You'll sort of develop a feel for what the right color should be, uh, what the style should be, what the size should be. So if you're spending a lot of money, you might check and see that the size is correct. Mm -hmm. People often make the mistake of reproductions of Toulouse-Lautrec posters thinking they found a great fortune when if they checked against a good, uh, a good reference, they would see that the size is much too small or much too big <laughs> and that they don't have the great treasure that they think they did. They need to look at the method of printing. Uh, is it consistent? Is the method of printing consistent with the period of the poster? I see. They need to look at the paper. They need to look at the colors. And I guess primarily it's the dealer that you buy from yeah. is a big part of it. Uh, what's your trust with them? What can they tell you about how they found the piece? Uh, but I would say it's it's a very, very, very minor problem. Is it possible for you, if you look at a poster, can you analyze the colors and see if they are of that period? Well, sometimes you can tell by the paper. I, I mean, I can tell from here to the door, which is half a block away. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I had someone coming in with a poster that they thought, breakfast at Tiffany's that they swore had come from the movie set or from people involved with the movie. But I could see from here that it was wrong. Uh, but then that's many years of, of looking at posters. It's generally easy to tell once you pay attention. Yeah. You know, most people are amazed that posters exist or that they're used, but they just have to look around. They're on the streets, they're around you everywhere. But yeah. until you're first exposed, you don't really see them. What is your personal taste in posters? Maybe the Russian constructivist. Mm -hmm. But then I like a wide range. There, there's a lot. I, I like stickers that you see on the street today. Yeah. I, I especially like punk posters. And I think the punk period and the art derived from that is a very important period. It was the first time that people really had control in the sense that they were using the office copying machine yeah. and printing off 50 or 100 of something. They could say what they wanted, like the dead Kennedys, or they could say really horrible things without any censorship of any kind. Yeah. Or what's not horrible. They could say what they wanted to say. And I think it puts the art and communication in the hands of the masses. So it's a very important breakthrough in the world of art, as far as I'm concerned. So what would be the poster that you would like to have here on the walls? Oh, well, I'd very much love to have a... a, a a good example of Metropolis, but I can't afford it. Yeah. Um, I know where one is, but <laughs> that doesn't help uh, the, the pocketbook. 
I buy things several times a week, three or four times a week I'll buy, and sometimes I'll buy 50 or a few hundred things. So there's always something new. I'm always buying something new. I'm always looking for the next thing. And I'm often buying 50 years out or 20, 30 years out. I can't do that now. <laughs> but like with the punk posters, when I first got those, I got a lot of them from Bleaker Bob, who was a customer. Yeah. He had a shop on West 3rd Street and I would just take down the old punk flyers as they came up. So I think there's lots of opportunity to build collections for free or for very little money mm -hmm. by just recognizing what's around you today. I was just thinking about that. What, would you, what kind of advice would you give to somebody who would like to start uh, a collection? I think, first of all, let's get something on your wall, something that's going to fit the apartment, fit the size. Let's mm -hmm. start with that. Um, I think you want to look for the best condition you can possibly find. Uh, you can't expect early things to be perfect. They, should, they often have some small flaws, as long as it doesn't affect the image of the poster. So I think buy what you like, really. Buy what you're going to frame to start with, and then look for condition, look for price. Mm. And then as you start building, learn something about that period and do something that, you have that speaks to you. Because most people aren't going to have the kind of money it takes to buy, to form a really great collection, unless you're speaking of several hundred thousand dollars. So I think buy what's contemporary. There's lots of music posters. There's lots of concert posters that are great. Um, there are a number of venues, um, Alamo Roadhouse, print posters of classic movies. Uh, there, there are a lot of different ways. So. I see. Take a look at what's out there today. I imagine that you have a number of different customers that come here. Some people who are uh, amateurs in the right sense of the word. I mean, they love posters. Yeah. Some may be collectors or some may be investors even. Uh, how do these people differ in the way that they interact with you? I would say 20 years ago, customers collected by style or artist. Mm -hmm. Today, people are really buying more th for size and color than they are anything else, uh, except for the more serious collectors. And then they're looking for pivotal, pivotal posters or posters that are important for the period that they collect in or that they, they're interested in. I mean, I've got a fair number of dealers who buy from me and then turn around and put things on specific auctions, mm -hmm. take them and put them in auctions, and do well for themselves. At one time, I dealt in Cassandra in a very big way. Yeah. And those were posters that I sold for as much as half a million dollars. And I sold quite a few in the $200,000, $300,000 range. Uh, but those were very hard to find. It's, the nature of the business is difficult. When I first began, I could spend all the money I had and still have plenty of other things to buy if I had that money. And that's what I did for probably 25 years. I spent everything I had on every trip to Europe uh, and then concentrated on getting my money back and buying the next collection. It's not as often to be able to buy great collections as it once was. I think a lot of them have been bought up. Uh, they simply don't exist or they now go online. Mm -hmm. So I think that's something that people need to pay attention to. There are any number of dealers who are online who are not particularly reputable. And that takes a little bit, if it's too good to be true, it generally is. I guess it just goes back to who are you dealing with? You know, there are a number of, number of ways to spend money foolishly, and online is often one of those ways. So do people come to you to authenticate uh, posters? Uh, Occasionally that happens, but most of the, the big houses have got their own people who are on retainer or on regular employees who do that. I occasionally, I occasionally get people doing that. I'll have them email me a photo and I can normally tell. But the first thing that happens is go back to what's, what's the correct size. Let's start with that and then we work from there. I can really understand what you said about this category of buyer who are looking for uh, size and color because many of the posters you have here are uh, incredible. I mean, they are beautiful, and they are. Uh, you, you can really tell that they would look great, where you have an interior design that is sort of thought through. Uh, posters can really add to a room, uh, and I especially noted that Bally, the Swiss uh, shoemaker, right? Yeah. Uh, that they have they have a very artistic uh, ambition in this field. I've got probably a hundred different 
posters done f for the company, mm -hmm. and they always h hired great design. Uh, the same could be said for Campari. The, the Italians, the Swiss, really know how to design posters. And I've often thought that it would be a good question or a good little interview to have, why do cold, small countries produce such great design? And that's true for the Scandinavians and uh, Northern Europeans, especially. So we're sitting here in, in, in your beautiful space, and I can see uh, uh, the posters that you talked about, uh, the Camparis, and, uh, and also you have the travel uh, posters. I see here Air France, Grand Bretagne, go to Germany, go to Scandinavia, uh, and they're all very, very cool. I mean, uh, they are all uh, pieces of art in their own right. Yeah, they really are, and that's something we haven't properly addressed, is the travel poster. And it came about to a large degree because the English had tremendous amounts of rail and lots of cars, and people weren't using the trains, and they weren't really paying for themselves. And so the English hit on the idea of doing a poster campaign, mm -hmm. and they would celebrate anything, tulips opening or a sunspot, and they would say, come here for... An they did lots and lots of posters. Mm -hmm. So that was one of the great forerunners or one of the great movers in poster design. They had specific places to hang them in the railway stations, specific sizes. So you knew that every week you would see something different, something interesting, and something fun. And the same hold true for the French, where they had lots of rails. And now the French, and I think the English both, their train companies were taken over by the government. But you get great design, and it doesn't stop. Even today, you still have good design. I mean, Dali did some great posters for the French SNCF. Yeah. Uh, and they have great contemporary artists now for Air France. So if, if it's train, plane, or ship, they're great posters. Yeah. No, they, I, I was struck by that when I, uh, when I came in here the first time when we met, uh, that uh, especially the travel posters have a... Very interesting. And then you also have, of course, the traditional, uh, the Toulouse Lautrec, uh, and then you have the show posters. I see Josephine Baker over there. Yeah. yeah. Of course, beer, and uh, it's, uh, it, it is really fantastic. Parapluie Revelle, what is that? Is that a, a um, poster for, for umbrellas? Yes, yes, it's for uh, Revelle, for the company that was in Lyon. Uh -huh. And it's one of Capiello's best posters three figures in the rain with their umbrellas up. Yeah. And the posters came onto the market because Lyon was building a second major hub for the train station. And where that hub was, was where Ravel had their factory. So the factory was destroyed, and this was about 25 years ago, 30 years ago. And so all of their inventory came onto the marketplace. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the reasons that you see French posters being as predominant as they were was that there were quite a few reasons, I think. One, the French had a big middle class. Mm -hmm. they, had, they owned their homes. They owned their homes in the country. Uh, a friend of mine sold their house. The family had owned the house for 500 years. There was ah. a house on Rue Serpente. Yeah. Um, so you could put a roll of posters in the attic or in the basement, and 50 or 100 years later, they're still there. The factories owned their land. So when they expanded, they didn't move. They simply built out. And so I think that was one of the reasons. The French have always been big merchants, a big merchant class. Yeah. And they've got one great auction house where they have five or ten auctions a day. Uh, Drouot is the name of the auction house. And you can go in there, and depending on the day, you might see a basket full of broken cups. Or you might see Napoleon's hat or a Bugatti car or a Picasso painting. Mm -hmm. So at every price, the French have a transaction. Mm -hmm. And they didn't suffer quite as much World War I or II as far as the major centers. So the posters weren't destroyed as they were, say, in Germany or in Belgium, which had great bombing uh, and great flight and great poverty and really hard times. So a lot of the posters were sold for scrap. And, some, and often it's remarkable that posters exist. So there was one poster in particular by Cassandra Bonal, which was a poster that Bonal was expanding their production, and they needed the storage space that they had. So they got rid of all their posters. So they hired somebody to carry the posters away. The guy who took the posters sold them to a guy who sold scrap paper. Mm -hmm. 
the guy who sold scrap paper had a friend who was in the confetti business, and these posters were quite conf- quite bright. Yeah. So he sold them to the confetti guy. By chance, the confetti guy knew a friend of mine in Paris, and he sold him those posters. So at every chance, those posters should have been destroyed. But yeah. by some miracle, they passed all these tests and go on to survive. That's incredible. And then I was able to buy a few hundred of them at the time. So, but most of the time, the posters are destroyed at some point. That's an incredible story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a fun story, and it was profitable for me and lucky for me to be able to deal, yeah. deal with that. It was uh, Jean-Louis Fivel is the dealer that I bought from. And, the, and actually, it was their house on Rue Serpent. Uh-huh. That was their, they were dealers, and your first dealers are probably, probably the French and the German are amongst the first big producers of posters. No, that um, Parapluie uh, Revel, it's very nice. It's uh, three people, right, walking yes. with their umbrellas in the, in a rainstorm, basically. Right. You can feel the wind. Yeah. <clears throat> it is uh, It is an incredible, uh, incredible... And then you had, when I was here the last time, and there's one guy who's bending forward, painting something on the wall, and then he has another guy behind him painting on his back. And another guy behind him was painting on the second guy's back. And I, I found that to be very, very funny. What is the story about that? And that poster? was a poster for Ripplin, actually for an enamel paint uh-huh. that dries as quickly as you paint it. Oh, oh, I see. Okay. And so that's what, what they were up to. I see. Yeah, there's a nice sense of humor. I mean, I've got all, I have many types of art on my wall, of course, including posters. And they make me very happy. I mean, I think that's the reward that posters give you. It's going to be something that you were born near there, you had a holiday there, it's part of your family history, it's someplace you want to go. Mm. So it's that, plus it's the the nice image. So posters give a lot of value for their their space. I mean, they give back. They do. This is a charming space. Now we have the heat coming, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes, they, they don't have, they've yet to get the steam fitters here to fix the problem. Every poster has a story, and I guess that is why this is so fascinating. Where do you normally go to research the backstory? Well, it used to be that I would go to the Victoria and Albert Museum. They've got a really great library, mm-hmm. and they have a great poster collection that you could actually ask to see things in their collection, they'd bring them out for you. But times have changed and now, for the most part, it's online. Uh, although I will contact fellow dealers and see if they have a backstory. Mm-hmm. But most everything is findable online if you search hard enough. Do you have customers that come to you and say, Philip, I'd like to have this and this and this. Can you find it for me? I can, and I do f- from time to time. Although many times the customer's expectations are unrealistic. Mm-hmm. They want things from the turn of the century, 100, 120 years old, to be mint and pristine. And the fact is that for prints that are small, you can expect that because print collectors have got cabinets, they put their prints in, they're well protected, they're well served. Posters are big, they're bulky. You have to roll them or fold them. They're hard for storage. So it's a very different, uh, different thing that you have to bring to, to posters as far as condition is concerned. Yeah, there's a, a poster by Jean Carlou, More Production, and it shows a gloved hand turning a wrench. It was a World War II poster. Mm-hmm. So I had a customer, I had one on my wall, sold it, and the customer came who'd seen it earlier and wanted it. Well, I found it for him. He wasn't quite happy with the condition. It was really perfect, but he didn't, it wasn't good enough for him. Mm-hmm. So by chance, I found almost all movie posters from about 1940 to about 1985 were folded. Mm-hmm. As they're printed, they come off the machine, they're folded, and then they're mailed out. The same is true of World War II posters. Those are folded as well. So by chance, I found the printer, the son of the printer, who'd printed the poster, the Jean Carlou Moore production poster. So it was unfolded, mint, brilliant condition, colors were perfect, 
unbelievable, best example I've ever seen that exists in the world. I called my collector, he came by. Oh, it doesn't have fold lines. <laughs> so sometimes uh, I've got to be sure that they're really serious and that they got correct expectations. I, I thought that was an advantage of not having fold uh, well, lines. Well, it was. I mean, it, it, it's a great anomaly. Yeah. Uh, I'd love to have that poster back. I mean, it's one of my favorite posters. Yeah. Because the printing was so brilliant. I mean, the, you can see on the glove and sort of like little strands of, of the leather and the hair of the leather. I mean, it was just beautiful yeah. beyond belief. Yeah. So some, some customers are, can be a pill and some really serious ones can be difficult, so much so that I'll sometimes ban them for years. I just won't sell to them. Oh, is that right? Yeah, life's too short to deal with people who are unpleasant. Yeah. Well, that's and true. if it's something really good, there's lots of buyers for it. So why not let someone nice yeah. have it rather yeah. than someone unpleasant? Yeah. So have you noticed when you look back on your career that you, you started at one end and now you are at a different end? Or is it all depending on uh, circumstances? Yeah, I, I can definitely see a, a change. Uh, things that, uh, I mean, there were paintings at the Museum of Modern Art that I loved and that today I'm just embarrassed to think that I ever liked them. <laughs> uh, so that, that's true with all types of art. Uh, my tastes have changed a great deal, but I've been fairly lucky. I, I think in not having an art education, I bought by image, and I wasn't seduced by signature. And so I bought really good things, and I was able to stay ahead. And also not having any money to begin with, I was one of the first dealers to go to Spain to buy posters. I was one of the first dealers to go to the Netherlands to buy posters. Because everyone, when I started, started in France, there weren't many people. Then all of a sudden, everyone was in France. So they were all in Paris. So I'd go to Lille or Avignon, Montpellier. I'd go to all the smaller cities. And then the other dealers started following. So then I started going to the Netherlands, and especially the Netherlands, because the style of poster is very different. And it's not a wide taste, uh, at least not yet. It will be. It's still a great design. So I've gone where opportunity has, has spoken to me. Mm -hmm. So I suppose that's what I've done. And the taste has changed, and I'm open. Although I've had a fairly good, I mean, I see thousands of, sometimes I see a couple of thousand things a week, and I've done that for 50 years now. So I've seen tens of millions of images. So I can develop a pretty, I've got a pretty well-developed idea of what constitutes good design, even not sometimes not knowing really why or what. You are operating with your own, let's say, intuition rather than looking at, uh, okay, so where is the market now? You mentioned in the beginning here that uh, uh, the 60s and 70s are, are coming back. So, of course, you, you focus on that a little bit, but you still have sort of the main orientation is, is it good uh, art? Is it good poster? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I go after good design and I don't really care what the social, social message is necessarily. It can be a very poor one. Mm -hmm. If the design is good, I'm interested in that design mm -hmm. and why that design speaks to us, yeah. why that design is important. Talking about the museums now, so let's say, for instance, uh, MoMA or other types of museums, do they have a department for posters? They do. I mean, some of the best collections are the Museum of Modern Art, the Metropolitan Museum. They both have very good holdings, and they have holdings, and they have posters that, that they've had for 50, 60, 70 years. I mean, they've been doing it for a very long time, especially the Met. You know, if you look at the code, if you look at the name of the poster and the artist, there's often a code that tells you when the poster was collected and how many pieces came from that collection. Mm -hmm. So that's often a, sort of a fun thing to look at, especially when you see things that are in brilliant condition. The Museum of the City of New York did a World War I show a couple of years ago at, that were absolutely brilliant, immaculate condition, unbelievable, never seen before in such good condition. And the reason that they'd had them in a box since 1920. So I wow. sometimes have uh, misgivings about things going to museums and staying there a hundred years. Yeah. But at the same time, it gives you something that's perfect or nearly as perfect as it was when it was first printed. 
So it's a mixed, uh, a mixed thing. And then there's a new museum, well new, it opened a little over a year ago, called Poster House, and they're on 23rd Street. And they deal, or they deal, they show and collect posters, uh, and I think pretty much only posters. So that's a good thing, because the poster museums around the world, in Germany, in the Netherlands, in, in Japan, I hear there's a museum coming in, in China, I think they're joining with the Victoria and Albert. Uh, Korea, I think Seoul is supposed to be getting a poster museum. Mm -hmm. But I'm not sure on the Chinese and, or the Korean information. I haven't been able to track that down yet, but that's okay. what I've heard. So institutions are beginning. For a long time, the poster was looked down on. It was a stepchild, the poor stepchild yeah. that was abused. Uh, now they, they're beginning to command their own place mm -hmm. in art history which i think has been long overdue yeah it's interesting when you when you were talking about the american uh, posters and so on i mean the shepherd fairy's uh, poster of obama is it's just an example of uh, how powerful a political uh, poster can be i mean to relay uh, a message uh, posters like the james montgomery flag poster i want you was a poster that was printed over a million times. I mean, that was 1917. So you had a million posters. The country was 100 million people, so a million posters was a big, big number yeah. at that time. And then you had posters, another poster done by James Montgomery Flagg of a man throwing a newspaper down, and it says, tell it to the Marines. And it changed the whole idea of the Marine Corps, because before, people thought of the Marines of being not very smart, not very bright. Uh -huh. But now he changes it to the, if you've got a problem, tell the Marines, they're gonna take care of it. Yeah. So it's a big change. So posters have had enormous impact, far beyond what you could possibly imagine or hope for. Uh, also a World War I poster of the Lusitania after the ship was sunk by the Germans. You have a mother and child drowning in the water. I mean, it stirred such outrage that they had to destroy the posters because people were so upset by the image. Yeah. So there's very few, I don't know there's much art that can have the tremendous impact that a poster can have, that can have a worldwide shaking yeah. impact. That is, that is really true. That is really an exceptional uh, um, thing about posters, that they have that power to influence people. I mean, you're right about that. I didn't thought about it that way. Yeah. You're right. What other sort of uh, posters have had an incredible, um, I mean, this Uncle Sam, I want you, that's the one you referred to, right? Yes. Uh, what other posters have had that uh, influence on people? Well, in the beginning of World War I, the posters both in Germany and England and France were more sort of heroic, come on boys, let's, let's finish this, let's, yeah. let's, do, let's end this war. And the Americans printed a poster of an American soldier bayoneting a German. And the Germans were so outraged that it showed the violence. They couldn't believe that the Americans could stoop so low as to do propaganda like this, and it created yeah. a huge uproar. Um, I think most of the posters that I can think of are generally protest posters. There's a poster done that was sponsored by the Museum of Modern Art, and they, but they backed away from it a little bit that was, shows the My Lai Massacre with the text, and babies, mm -hmm. which was part of an interview. And the answer was, and babies. Was, did they kill women and children? Oh, yeah. And the response was, yes, and babies. I have to double check that quote, but it's more or less correct. So that, that poster had enormous impact. And it was part of a competition that the Museum of Modern Art had put together, and they were gonna print it, but then they backed down and there's two different texts on that poster. I think most of the posters that have had that kind of impact have primarily been in the protest field. So um, when we look at your website here, you have uh, a list of popular uh, categories, popular searches, and popular artists. And some of the popular artists here are listed, and I thought we should, we should uh, uh, look at them uh, one by one. Theophile Alexander Steinland. Very important figure, and he did a lot of, did an awful lot of design. Mm -hmm. And he was a socialist, or he would do lots of work for, for the workers. And he had a couple of daughters, and they had cats. So 
Le Chat Noir is a poster by Steinlin that you know, that you mentioned earlier. Oh, yeah. And so the cats and little young girls play a prominent part in his design uh -huh. simply because they surrounded him. Yeah. Bernard Villemot. Yep, Villemot. Villemot and Henri. That's the one that you like, the Bali poster. Oh, Actually, is, it's oh, Villemot. Is, oh, is that the one? The yeah. one with the, uh, the uh, sort of, uh, the, uh, I see. It's, well, and also if you take a close look at it, it's two, it's two shoes. It's women's shoes and men's shoes. And often, <laughs> did see. you see that? No, I didn't see that. Let's go, let's go and check it out later. And then you have Henri Le Monnier. And a French artist working in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Mm -hmm. uh, did a lot of product design, and especially for, uh, for drinks. And Charest, of course, we talked about him. Do you have any Charest here? Oh, yeah, there are quite a few. Oh, quite a few. Yeah. Oh. I, I, and I, I bought part of the archive of Shucks, which was his printing company. So wow. I have a lot of Charest wow. prints. Uh, primarily small, mm -hmm. but I also have probably 30 or 40 posters Wow. as well. And Capiello, we talked about, uh, Raymond Savignac. Yeah. Uh, P-A-L, who is that? Paul. Paul. Paul was a, I believe, a Hasburg prince who went to France, became an artist, was a society painter, and he did quite a few posters. Mm -hmm. And he comes to America, he comes actually to, to Miami Beach in 1900, and becomes a well-known society painter. Paul Collin. He's a designer in the 1930s. He did a lot of, he did work for Josephine Baker. That's probably his best known posters. There's also Peter G. Now that's an artist from the 60s. Mm -hmm. And we have quite a lot of work by him, G-E-E, -E, an English artist who came here and worked with Warhol and the op and pop group. You mentioned him the last time I was here, I yeah, believe. Razia, right. uh, Razia. Yeah, a contemporary artist who is still doing some work. He's one of the few artists that makes a living solely from posters. Eric. Oh, Eric. Eric. But he was a designer in the 50s that's up and coming. People don't really know him as well. And then Boyce is a German artist. Yeah. contemporary artist, and I have quite a lot of work by him. Thank you so much, Philip, for taking the time and sharing your fascinating stories with us. And to our listeners, if you love posters, visit the store in Tribeca. It's on Chambers Street between Church and West Broadway. This is Art Insiders New York, and my name is Anders Holst. If you enjoyed this episode and have family and friends who love New York and are passionate about the world of art, design, and architecture in the city, Please spread the word by following us on artinsidersnewyork.com or liking us on our Facebook page, Art Insiders New York, where we publish newsworthy material all the time. It's very much appreciated. Thank you. This episode was produced by UOM LLC, copyright 2021.